How's everyone doing this morning? Very quiet. It's like, uh, it's like when summer's coming and when you have kids, you're like, summer's coming. You're like, sweet. We have summer and then a week into summer, you're like, what do we do with them? <laughs> it's like that kind of awkward silence right now. But it's always a privilege to, uh, to share here at Oceanside. And uh, I hope that this morning that you uh, leave encouraged. I um, had been feeling things all week and I could not articulate them until this morning. And I'm still not convinced that I've really articulated them well. So I, I'm going to ask for grace um, and I'm going to ask that God speaks to you in spite of me this morning and any time that I preach. Uh, but I just want to read an uh, interesting quote as most young preachers do in today's style of preaching. <laughs> right? Who's, who finds me so funny over there? Okay. It says this. In an interview, Andrew Walls, a distinguished historian of world Christianity, noted that wherever the other great world religions began, that is still their center today. Islam started in Arabia, at Mecca, and the Middle East is still the center of Islam today. Buddhism started in the Far East... And that's still the center of Buddhism today. So too with Hinduism. It began in India and it is still predominantly an Indian religion. Christianity is the exception. Christianity's center is always moving. It's always on a pilgrimage. The original center of Christianity was Jerusalem. But then the Hellenistic Gentiles, who were considered the unwashed barbarians, embraced Christianity with such force that soon the center of Christianity moved to the Hellenistic Mediterranean world, to Alexandria, North Africa, and Rome. And it stayed there for a number of centuries. But then another set of unwashed barbarians, the Northern Europeans, Franks and Anglo-Saxons and Celts, took so took hold of Christian faith that soon the center of Christianity migrated again to Northern Europe. There, and in North America throughout colonization and immigration, the center has rested for a thousand years. But recently, it is shifting again. In the 20th century, Christianity receded in Europe and in North America. It just barely kept up with the population growth. Meanwhile, in Latin America, Asia, and Africa, it has been growing at up to 10 times the population rate. In the past decade, a major corner was turned with more than 50% of Christians being found in the world in the Southern Hemisphere. For example, at the turn of the century in the United States, there were roughly 2.5 million Episcopalians and other Anglicans. In Nigeria alone, there were 17 million Anglicans. In Uganda, there were 8 million Thus, in just those two countries alone, there live more than 10 times the number of Christians in the United States. In the year 1900, Africa was only 1% Christian. And now Christians make up nearly half the African population. In the next 50 to 70 years, the the center of Christianity is predicted to complete the shift away from European countries and from the United States. And it will migrate as it always migrates. But there's a second part to this quote that scares me a little bit. Are you ready? In this same interview with Andrew Walls, he was asked, why do you think this happens? If the centers of other religions remain constant, why does the center of Christianity constantly change? 
And Walls replied, one must conclude, I think, that there is a certain vulnerability, a fragility at the heart of Christianity. You might say that this is the vulnerability of the cross. Walls went on to hint that when Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for a long period, the radical message of sin and grace and the cross can become muted or even lost. Then Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion. One... One that's for respectable people who try to be good. And eventually it becomes a dormant virtually dormant in those places and the center moves somewhere else. Isn't it true that the nature of religion is always advice but the nature of the gospel is always good news? And good news always has a way of spreading. And this morning I just feel challenged where this is our last Sunday before everyone goes back to school all these things. But my question is, how desperately do you actually want to live led by the Spirit? I feel like in my own life, there are so many opportunities to just live in the flesh. To just do what we're doing. Do it in our own strength. Figure it out. School's going back in. We all get into that mindset. We're, gonna, we're just going to slot back in. We're going to okay, get back in that system, back in that process, sign up for that thing, do this, get back in the routine. You know what I'm saying? And we start filling all those boxes again. Summer is like a little bit of scatter. It's like we all just doing our thing, whatever, is having fun, and it's beautiful. And then we come back, and we all just start slotting back into all the boxes. But I just felt so challenged looking at my own life and, and feeling so unworthy to say these things. But do I really want to be led by the Spirit? One thing I know is this, is that if we want to be led by the Spirit, we cannot follow a culture that isn't following God. Exodus 23, 2, the first part says this, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. Romans 12, 2 says this, don't, do not follow the, sorry, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but be a new and different person with a fresh newness in all you do and think. Then you will learn from your own experience how his ways will really satisfy you. It's amazing to me that when Jesus called his disciples, he spent three years with them. And while he was spending three years with them, he was kind of showing them the ropes. You're like, you know, come follow me, come follow me. And these guys would follow him along and he'd sit with them, he'd, he'd, he'd teach them, and then he would do a crazy miracle. He would, he would share a very simple, profound story. He would confound wise people with his simple stories. And the disciples would sit and watch and, and they would try it and they would watch and, and, and they were waiting. And, and for three years, that was the process. But then it finally came to a head when Jesus Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice in his death. And it came to the ultimate head when he was raised from the dead three days later. If I was one of those disciples, as they did, you would be a little bit worried during those three days. You know, in, in, um, in uh, crisis and turmoil, we often forget 
things. And they forgot that he had said, in three days, I'm going to rise again. And I remember watching this, this series. We watched it on Netflix. And the, all the disciples in the room, and they're disheartened and all these things. And Mary says, don't you remember what he said? He would rise in three days. But then he rises... And the disciples are there, and they're, and they're excited, and all these things, and they see the truth. There he is. He's risen. He's alive. And he appears to hundreds of people. And then he tells them to wait. Were they waiting because they didn't know what they were supposed to do? No. Jesus had already commissioned them. He said, go, go into all the world and preach the good news. Baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And surely I will be with you even until the end of the age. They knew the mission. They knew the mission, but they were not ready to carry out that mission until they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. We know this. But what I think is amazing about that story is that when they were empowered by the, by the Spirit, it produced in them the exact opposite of when they weren't empowered by the Spirit. Think about Peter. Peter denies Christ, freaked out by the fear of man, worried he's going to lose his life, all these things. And then all of a sudden, when he's empowered by the Spirit, he stands up in boldness. And he says, this man whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. There was a boldness that came about him. Why? Because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Anything in our lives that is done outside of the Spirit is done in the flesh. I'm telling you, I'm, I feel so sobered thinking about this myself. I'm trying to, I was trying to prep last night. I'm sitting with Bex. We're sitting there and I'm realizing that I'm realizing that I'm actually, I'm incapable. I'm thinking about this. I'm sitting there thinking I have to preach a message on, on um, being empowered by the Spirit, but I, I actually need this for my own life so desperately. I, I'm actually, I got news for you guys. I'm a horrible husband. <laughs> I need help. I'm a horrible father. I need help. Like, I'm serious. We, we, were, we were sitting, I'm going to share this. We were sitting last night because we, we've been working some things out in our family of um, how we're raising Mila. And there's another baby on the way, which means this whole parenting thing is not actually slowing down for us. It's going to continue and with force. But I was thinking to myself, how naturally do I, as a, like, you guys know, like, I, when Bex and I got married, Mila was seven. So, so um, you know when you think about being a parent, you always think about it, like, in the future, like, oh, when I'm going to, when I be a parent, like, I'll be ready. Well, I wasn't ready. And I'm still not ready. But now, more than ever, I need to be led by the Spirit. We, it's so easy for me as, as a parent to just like default to trying to make a good person out of my child. 
Like, oh yeah, like I don't want them to be bad. I just want them to be good. But, but God doesn't treat us like that. God is more interested in making us spiritual. He didn't design our lives to be a, a, an act of tightrope walking. You ever seen someone walk on a tightrope? It doesn't matter how incredible they do. They could hang it over the, most big, the biggest chasm, but when they're on it, they're not, there's no peace. It's just... That's tightrope living. That's tightrope living. When we live trying to be good versus bad, it's tightrope living. And I just feel as we go into this next season of our lives where everything's going back in the boxes, God is calling us again and reminding us quite simply that he's not called us to be good, he's called us to be spiritual. Because when we live by the Spirit, we accidentally fulfill the law. When we live by the law, we always fail. And if, if I focus my energies, you see, it's the whole mumps and measles thing, is that if I have mumps and I tell Mila, Mila, measles, I've got measles, I've got measles, she'll just get mumps. I can't parent in the flesh and hope that I'm going to raise a child in the spirit. Uh-uh. Our kids catch what we have. We have to parent in the spirit. We have to live in the spirit. You see, I can focus my energies on making Mila a good person, but if she doesn't grow up to be a spiritual person, if she doesn't grow grow up knowing the voice of God, then I've got a performer for a daughter. Romans 8 says this in verse 3, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He died this, he, sorry, he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fulfilled and fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. I really believe God is focusing, uh, positioning us for a focus change. In verse 5 it says, Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's law. And it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. Can I suggest that spirit life is actually the most natural life? And it's not weird, but it is wild. John 3.8 says this. In the message it says, So don't be surprised when I tell you that you have to be born from above, out of this world, so to speak. You know well enough how the wind blows, this way and that. You hear it rustling through the trees, but you have no idea where it comes from or where it's headed next. That's the way it is with everyone born from above, by the wind of God, the Spirit of God. 
James 1 says this in verse 5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver, for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. See, when I, when I read um, that other verse, that uh, the wind comes and it goes, and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, like, in a way, that sounds unstable. It doesn't hit the boxes. It's not, like, measurable. It's, you can't see the wind. You can just experience the wind. And you see it rustle through the trees, and you think, oh, I think it's blowing this way and this and all these things. We, we have a little aluminum boat, and we were, we were driving um, just in the channel between Newcastle and, and, and Nanaimo, and we were going against the wind. And it was, like, ferocious. Like, driving, I'm standing up, and I can't even hear the, the people in front of me talking because it's just like, and we're barely moving. And then we decide, okay, we're going to turn around and go the other way. And when we turned the boat around and went the other way, you could not even tell the wind was blowing. We were moving at the same speed as the wind, and it actually felt like, it felt like there was absolutely no wind. But that's what it's like when we live by the Spirit. See, it's not, it's not frantic, and it's not out of control, and it's not unstable, It's flexible. You see, when we as Christians live in the flesh, we actually do the thing that James is talking about. We don't ask God for wisdom. We don't lean on him and trust in him. But what we do is we we trust on ourselves and it makes us double-minded and unstable in all our ways. When we don't live by the Spirit, when we live in the flesh, we're unstable in all our ways. But when we live by the Spirit, we're humble, we're flexible, we're teachable, and we're in step with the Spirit. When I live in the flesh, I always second-guess myself. Living in the flesh is like living with two right feet. Another boat analogy, (laughs) conveniently. Right, babe? When you're in a boat, have you ever lost balance in a boat? First thing you do. What's the first thing that you do? You reach out for something that you think you can trust, right? That's what we do. What's the second thing we do? Someone say swear. I hear that over there. (laughs) Pee a little. Yep, all true. But just before... (laughs) Clench? Yeah. So the thing, before we clench and pee and do all those things, there is something else that we do. Once we've reached out to try and grab something that we trust, the second thing we do is we lower our center of gravity. Right? Isn't that true? What are we trying to do? We're trying to find stability, aren't we? Most of us dream about standing really tall in the kingdom of God. But can I suggest, standing tall in the kingdom of God requires having a very low center of gravity before God. Because here's the nature of the gospel. You and I, we don't serve a king... We serve a king on a cross. If I serve a king, 
And I look at him as just an all-powerful, a king. He's big, he's crazy, he's powerful, he's not safe. He's all these things. Then it's going to be a very domineering view of a king. But I'm serving a king on a cross. And the reason he can ask anything of me is because he gave everything for me. And the reality is this, for all of us, is that if at the heart of our worldview is a man who dies for his enemies, which we do in Christ, then the way that we're going to live lives of influence in our society is not going to be by demanding respect and power and authority and chasing all these things and trying to earn more money and get all these, all these things. No, it's going to be through serving, just like Jesus did. Philippians 2 says this, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. But it's got to be from a low center of gravity. What is gravity? Gravity is actually just the law of attraction, isn't it? Two objects together. I love that. Because what happens in our lives as Christians is that when we're led by the Spirit, we naturally become more humble. We naturally assume the position of being on our knees before God. And it's not to try and get something from Him, it's not because He makes us this way and that way and forces us and all these things. No. Because when we spend time with a king on a cross, the natural response is that we want to serve because that's what he did for us. In John 3, it says this in verse 3, there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. I wonder if, I wonder if he did that because he just cared about all the other religious people. Like, we're not with him. Don't go see him. But he was hungry. He said, Rabbi, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of the water and the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. And then it goes on to the verse we already read. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. We cannot produce spiritual life in the flesh. We can't. We can't fake it. It has to be empowered by the Spirit. Romans 8.14, it says, only those people who are led by God's Spirit are His children. So what does that make everyone else who's going to heaven, but who's not led by the Spirit? Do you know what it makes them? Or me? Or you? Slaves. You know what we become slaves to? We become slaves to the flesh. 
We become slaves to the thing that have dominion over our lives. You see, when we're, when we're walking in step with the spirit, it really is true. We accidentally fulfill the law. When we don't live checking boxes, the boxes get filled by accident is basically what I'm saying. And I think the beautiful thing about being led by the spirit, some of us, we, we're, we're like, we feel in a bubble or stuck, but the beautiful thing about being led by the spirit is that your horizon always changes. It always changes. One day God will use you one way and the next day he'll use you a different way. The beautiful thing is that God, God works through desire. Has anyone noticed that? Like I started a business about seven years ago and the beautiful thing about business for me has been the amount of work it takes and then how easily you can lose it. And then also like the feeling of succeeding at something. And then you find people who have a likeness and you, you can hire and you can try this and you can do this. And it's a beautiful process. But if I was to tell you my business story and spin it just a little bit so that I'm the hero, I could really exalt the amount of work it took and really underplay just how much I enjoyed it. You see, and us as Christians, we like to make heroes out of humans. But in God's economy, he works through desire. So we can look at someone's life and be like, oh my gosh, look at the price they paid for Christ. Look at this, this, this. Look at the price Christ paid for him, her, you. You see, God works through desire. Because he knows that we are people who desire things. C.S. Lewis says something like this. It's like, if we live desiring, like having a desire for more money, power, sex, all the things, it's not because we have too much desire, but because we have too little desire. I think the challenge in all of this for me is that The Bible is just so dang true when it says that many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purposes that prevail. How quickly do you make plans? Maybe maybe you're making plans right now. We're thinking about this. You're like looking into life insurance. We're, We're saving up for that, doing this, doing this. How easy is it for us to just live our lives and never actually consult God in what we're doing? Like, think about it. No, I'm just going to, no, 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 this is the right thing. No, we are going to make a family right now. This, we are having a baby right now. No, we're, we're buying that house. It's just the right, it's the right thing to do. Wasn't it David? David who conferred in his men and not with God. And when the odds were not, were forever in his favor, he still lost the battle. I love this quote. It doesn't really fit here, but I'm going to say it. Rick Warren says this. So when you open your Bible, God opens his mouth. Yeah, I, I wish I came up with that. But it's true. We, as spiritual beings, need to be feeding ourselves spiritually. Lewis says this. For a spiritual nature, like a bodily nature, will be served. If we deny it food, it will gobble poison. Sheesh. 
Flesh give birth, gives birth to death. Spirit gives birth to life. You see, if we don't live by the Spirit, God, we limit ourselves in the way God can use us in life. Like, does that make sense? Like, if, if I'm not living in the Spirit, I'm actually living in death. I'm actually cultivating death in my life by not living by the Spirit. I'm living by the flesh. It's cultivating actual death. Death. Die. Death. If I don't live by the Spirit, I can't take life to death because it's, I am death. Do you know what I'm saying? And God has a mission for us in our city, and he wants to take each and every one of us into places of death to bring life. It's this whole thing like Ezekiel, whatever it is, 37, Valley of the Dry Bones. God takes this guy, this prophet, into the Valley of the Dry Bones, and he says, son of man, can these bones live? But for us, we can live with skeletons in the closet. We can live with these things, this death, because we're not living by the Spirit. But God wants to take those skeletons and bring them back to life. Not the sin and like go back into the sin. Obviously, I'm not saying that. But I'm talking about he takes those things and he turns them around for good. That which the, the devil had planned for evil turns around for good. He redeems the story so he can connect us with the people in our city to redeem them and bring that which was lost back in. I was thinking about the story of the Red Sea. It's a crazy story. God delivers Moses and the children of Israel out of Egypt. And they go through this long journey through the desert. All these things are happening. Part of this journey is that they go through the Red Sea. And we know the story, and it's easy to look back on and think, what a crazy thing. But I I was thinking, like... The most insane part of this story is actually that it started with a man standing on the edge of the ocean, of the sea, holding a stick. Mountains on each side, the children of Israel behind him, wondering, okay, what now? And the chariots and all those things behind them. But when I listen to this in Psalm 77 verse 19, it says this. Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. Spirit-led living is way, way more exciting than flesh living. It's way more exciting. I was thinking there's so many things we can do, hey, for our kids. I've been thinking about kids naturally. You know, a lot of things in light of parenting and kids and all these things. But just that we can so quickly, like the Bible says, a good, a, a, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. But what does your mind go to when you think about inheritance? You think about money, finances? Think about Houses, experiences. What do we think about when we think about inheritance? I think like, can you imagine? Can you imagine God bless my business so crazy that I spent my whole life building a fleshly inheritance that would actually hinder my daughter 
from following and being led by the Spirit. I could miss it in the blessing. Before I, before I started in business, uh, I actually worked with Oceanside. <laughs> and, um, and part of that journey for me was uh, I had carried on some debt. I, I had to pay off some, some debt. Um, not, not because of the church. Let me clarify that. Not because of the church. But I had some debt that I couldn't pay off. I wasn't making enough money at the time. And my debt was accumulating. And I was not a good steward with my finances. And there was a few issues there. But at, at one point, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this. Is that at one point, I had to call my graves. I said, Mike, I am like properly toasted right now. Like I'm telling you, it was the bottom of the barrel. I was parked at a gas station and I got into the gas station. My car was cutting out because I had no gas. And I went to swipe my cards and none of them, they were all maxed out. Okay, this is like embarrassing. I'm sitting in the gas station. I'm late for a meeting. Like can't get there. I'm just broke, broke. So I'm, this is the moment. So I'm calling Mike and all these things. And so Mike says, Wes, you got to do what you got to do. Like, you know, we're going to help you and help me find people and all these things. You managed to get this, this job. But before I left on this camp job to pay off this debt, Mike, as a true father, sat with me and he said, there's a call on your life. He said, what's your plan with what you're doing? What do you, what's the plan? And I said, you know what? I just want to go. I want to pay off the, the, the amount. And then I just want to, that's it. And then I'll come back to Nanaimo. And I think I'm going to maybe start a business. I don't know. To go away, six, seven, eight months, work this job. The money is great. You start to feel it. Paying this off, paying this off, demolishing this debt. And I remember I went away for Christmas, 2011, something like that, 12 Went away for Christmas to visit my family in Toronto. And just before I went there, I literally had put the last payment on the card. Zero dollars in my bank account, zero dollars on my credit card. And I was so flipping happy. Just before I leave, my boss at the time comes to me and says, hey, we really like your attitude. We like that you're not well-trained in what's going on. So we have a fresh canvas. We want to work with you. We want you to become this, become that, learn how to do this, get this training. And suddenly my eyes are growing like this, like someone sees potential in me, like this is an amazing opportunity. And I came back from, from, from the Christmas break, landed here, and just before I left for camp, a very spirit-led father, Mike Graves, calls me up. He says, hey man, let's have coffee. He said, what? so Wes, how's it going, man? What's, how are you, how's your debt going? Good, I just paid it off. So what are you going to do now? I don't know. Like I'm thinking about it. I'm feeling a bit fleshly, double-minded. Like maybe I'm going to just, it wouldn't be a bad thing to like maybe save up 20, 30, 40, 50 grand, go do the job. Who knows? Like they offered me this, like that must be a door from God, but like never consulted God. And he said, Remember what you promised me. That was it. 
Do you know the effect that that has had on my life? A spirit-led Christian. Being spirit-led and calling out something in me that needed to happen when I was being fleshly and double-minded. Do you know what that gives me hope for? It gives me hope for the fact that God has those kinds of things for each and every one of us. And we don't know the effect it has. Do you, do you really think David, with his little sling and his rock, do you really think it was just done? Or do you think maybe an angelic angel grabbed that thing and just smashed it into Goliath's forehead? Think about it. Was Daniel dodging lions in the lion's den? Or did God close, close the mouths of the lions? I love that verse. Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. The thing about walking in the spirit is that you're going to go on paths that no one knew was there. Moses could have come up with a really strategic way to get maybe around that ocean, but eventually he probably would have been done. But God opened an ocean. He opened an ocean. And a spirit-led people went through. And a flesh-led Pharaoh died. I'm going to close with this. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm going long. I apologize. But I'm going to... Hebrews 11 is like one of my favorite passages. This is, I'm going to do something that's a little out of the box. And if it fails, that's fine. We'll just cut the video. Thank you all for coming this morning and have a good... We'll use that ending. <laughs> if it fails, then it fails. But whatever. Let's give it a shot. Okay. Hebrews 11 talks about the heroes of faith. These are all people who attest to God's faithfulness. So if you are someone who can attest to God's faithfulness, I want you to stand up. Okay. It's not a trick question. If you don't feel like you can attest to God's faithfulness, that is, you don't have to stand up. Now, if I could be so bold, if there is one person here who has the courage to come and stand beside me, that you feel like you're going through tremendous trial in life, or you feel like your vision is blurry, you're not quite sure where, I just need one person. I'm not going to ask you questions. You're not going to talk. I just want you to come and stand beside me for one second. Anyone? Can I get one person? You've got one here? Okay, great. Two? What? You both can come stand. Come and stand up here. Three. Hebrews 12 is this amazing passage because what happens in Hebrews 12 is something very interesting to me. Hebrews 11 has just talked about all the heroes of faith. They're not the heroes of our faith. They are heroes of faith who believed in the hero of our faith. Right? And what happened was, after the writer kind of lists these people, it's Abraham, it's Isaac and Jacob and Moses, while he didn't know this, he chose the pleasures of eternity over the, the pleasures of sin for a season and, and all these things and they chose this and they chose that and we could admire those people's actions. But actually, God had appealed through, to them through desire because that's what God does and they were looking to something greater because they were so convinced. They weren't amazing people. They were serving an amazing God. And in Hebrews 12 in the Amplified, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the writer has just told us about all of these amazing people who just simply said yes to God, who responded to God, who did these things. Since they stand around us, he's saying, 
who by faith have tested to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness, stripping off every unnecessary weight and the sin which so easily and cleverly entangles us. Let us run with endurance and active persistence the race that is set before us. Looking away from all that will distract us and focusing our eyes on Jesus. He's, he's using Greek imagery. It was the, the runners, the Athens guys. Those guys, they would run all but naked. They removed every hindrance. It's like when they throw a spaceship in the air. Those things are so streamlined. It's removing every hindrance. And the sins that so easily entangled. But what, what is he referencing? He's saying that the, the, the heroes of faith who by faith have testified to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness. Because sometimes we can live in the arena of our lives and we can feel like we're in defeat. And we can feel like everyone else around us in the arena of our lives is in defeat. But let me tell you something. There is another arena The other arena is a cloud of witnesses who testify to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. So this is what we're going to do. You are all standing here and you're testifying to the goodness and faithfulness of God. And I need you for a moment because you're creating a picture for these people. For a moment, I want you to actually, at the top of your voice, declare the goodness and the faithfulness of God. You ready? We're going to do it, and I want you to see the encouragement it brings to these people. This is not planned. We're just trying it. People going through trial, we stand with a cloud of witnesses around us saying, God is faithful. Can we do it? Let's try it. One, two, three. God, you are faithful. You are worthy. You are exalted. God, you are trying to bring a generation through that sees your goodness. God, we love you. You are faithful to the next generation. Your love endures forever. You are faithful to every single person. God, when I trusted you, you came through. Lord, you have never let me down. You have never failed me. And do you know what happens? When these people begin to respond to the faithfulness of God, now we're going to do something else. I want you all to cheer at the top of your lungs. Because this is the arena for each and every one of us. Each and every one of us, when we respond to the Spirit of God, all of heaven cheers. The sanctuary is filled with people worshiping God, thanking God for His goodness and His faithfulness. Let's just just do it. Give a big cheer. Let's hear what it sounds like. When we respond to his faithfulness, heaven cheers. Hey? Amen. Awesome, church. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Feel free to take your seats. Let's give uh, Wes a round of applause for his word. The powerful word for us this morning here. We're going to close the service there. It's uh, time if you've got 180 kids to go grab them. I just want, though, uh, Wes has done an amazing job at, 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 you know, prompting us forward to life in the Spirit. And I just feel like there could be some people here, maybe you're new, maybe you don't even know what that phrase means, life in the Spirit. 
Well, basically what it means is when Jesus was still here, when he was talking to his disciples in, in John 16, he said it was better that I go um, because he was going to send us um, someone else. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go, that Jesus goes away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And for each one of us, for each Christian, for each person who believes in Christ, that he's been raised from the dead, who each one of us who's been born again, we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I just want to invite you, if, if that's an alien concept to you, if you don't know what life in the Spirit, if, if you're thinking, West, you mean just you know, spiritual life, like, I don't even know what that means. I just want to invite you to the front. We'd love to speak to you. We'd love to talk to you about what you're having available to you in Christ Jesus, myself and Wes and any of the other leaders. Other than that, thank you so much for coming out to Oceanside Church. If you're new, please stick around. We'd love to connect with you either at the back or just in community out here. Um, Thank you so much for coming and we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys.